Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 75 for the week ending Monday, September 19th, 2016. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Demasubo. I'm really pleased you could join me. In today's show, I'll be sharing a conversation I had with the Kenyan journalist and self-confessed podcast addict, Eric Mugendi. Now, Eric is editor-at-large at iafrican.com, and his Tumblr, entitled Kenyan Long Read, is also well worth checking out. This past week, Eric tagged me into a Twitter debate he had with several people, including Uber's head of business for sub-Saharan Africa, Justin Spratt, over the African Tech Summit happening in London on September 29th. Now, there's been some backlash around the event's conspicuously mostly male, non-black, non-African speaker list, which included folks some people in the Twitterverse did not quite feel were representative of Africa's tech ecosystem. Now, I got Eric to give me his take on the matter as well as share what's trending in his world at the moment. That's well worth sticking around for. But we'll have to get to the week's news headlines first, which include MTN shutting down its mobile money business in South Africa, Iroko launching a platform called Iroko X to distribute and monetize short-form content, and Madagascar becoming the second African market after Tanzania to roll out mobile money interoperability. In the meantime, though, as always, if there are any past episodes of the show you might have missed, you can always catch up whenever you like by clicking through to africantechroundup.com. You can also find us on Twitter at African Roundup, as well as on Facebook at facebook.com, African Tech Roundup. And of course, if you'd like to contribute to the show, you can write us an email or send us an audio note via hello at africantechroundup.com. Now, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by our sister podcast, African Tech Conversations. The series features relaxed, in-depth chats I've had with leading entrepreneurs, innovators, and executives who are intimately involved in Africa's tech scene. Now, to check it out, simply head to our SoundCloud account at soundcloud.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. And all you have to do is click on the African Tech Conversations playlist. Now it's time to get into this week's news. First up, MTN South Africa has joined Vodacom South Africa in admitting defeat in the mobile money arena. Now back in episode 57, we covered Vodacom's spectacular failure in trying to copy and paste M-Pesa in the South African market. What they didn't do is take into account the differences between the South African market and Kenya's where M-Pesa continues to be the business. Now, MTN has cited a, quote, lack of commercial viability, unquote, uh, as being the reason for shutting down the service in South Africa, where, of course, a sophisticated and more well-established financial services industry exists that's relative to the rest of the continent, and in some ways relative to parts of the developed world as well. Now, MTN has vowed, however, to keep pushing its mobile money service in other countries on the continent. Uh, they have, in fact, dedicated more resources to marketing it in countries like Cameroon and Cote d'Ivoire. It seems unlikely that MTN will give up trying to make a serious go of the whole mobile money thing, uh, what with the recent launch of a micro-insurance offering called AO in partnership with MMI Holdings, a company with a fairly significant African footprint, you know, something like 13 countries. Um, this was just a short while ago, but there's no doubt fintech plays like this one and others that will continue to play a big part in MTN's attempt to evolve from being just a mobile telco to something, I guess, a little less stuck in the past. 
If you want to access valuable insights into what makes South Africa's mobile money market a tough nut to crack, be sure to check out episode 57 of the show, which featured Rand Merchant Insurance Holdings' uh, Dominique Collett-Underlick, uh, where she schooled us on the ins and outs of the South African fintech scene. Moving on to two stories involving mobile data pricing now, the first being the news that mobile data prices in Zimbabwe have gone up by 500%. It's been reported that mobile networks instituted rate hikes that were ordered by the country's telecommunications regulator, the Postal Telecommunications Regulatory Authority of Zimbabwe, Portraz. Now, many people believe that the data prices in Zimbabwe have been up to prevent citizens from taking to social media to circulate anti-government sentiments, particularly with the planned rollout of an alternate currency called bond notes being imminent. Uh, whatever the reason, though, a gig of mobile data in Zimbabwe will now cost as much as 30 Zimbabwe should now easily make the list for being one of the world's most expensive places to purchase mobile data. But as it happens, uh, they're an excellent company as South Africa continues to sport some of the most expensive mobile data rates in the world. Now, that's an issue that's got one of the country's more famous media celebrities, a dude named Tabo Mulefe. He goes by Tibo Touch to his fans. I got him all fired up last week. Thibaut Touch started by inviting his fairly large social media following to join his hashtag data must fall campaign to demand lower prices from cellular networks. He then took to various traditional media outlets to speak out against what he calls exorbitant pricing, which, as he puts it, prevents young people, especially students, from accessing information they need to succeed. Now, here's the thing. I figure the gravy train is over for mobile telcos like MTN and Vodacom, who've spent many years benefiting from what's largely been a monopolistic position in, in many parts of the continent uh, that's allowed them to deliver mobile services at a premium with this take-it-or-leave-it mentality. I do think, though, that you know much of the rhetoric around Thibaut Touch's campaign is faulty. Uh, I was recently invited to talk about it on South Africa's largest morning show on television, SABC 2's Morning Live, and I was really quite frustrated by the poor quality of dialogue around this issue. So I'm going to get into it a little bit. Look, for starters, I reckon you know Africans should corporately expect to continue to pay high prices for mobile data as long as the mobile telcos are trying to figure out how to evolve their business models in order to enjoy the levels of economic success they've you know they've had in the past. Now. Here are a few things to remember before you blindly back this hashtag data must fall thing in my bob. Um, first off, mobile telephony is a business, people. By and large, it's run by corporations that are obliged to achieve a return on investment for their shareholders. Now, in order to deliver their services, mobile carriers have to build and maintain their own networks, and they have to do so profitably. And that is their primary mandate. It's not as though mobile networks are built using public funds, at least in most cases. And so, secondly, from a technical perspective, uh, mobile telcos have limited resources to fit everyone's usage on. The radio spectrum they harness can only hold so much activity at any given time, and so they simply must institute measures that ensure people self-regulate their consumption, and they typically do that by functioning on a cost-based model. Now, even if they wanted to offer everyone free, unthrottled data access, and of course they don't, uh, they couldn't. Companies like Vodacom, MTN, Safaricom, really all the mobile service providers on the continent simply have too many customers to make a cheap, uncapped data model work. Even second-tier companies like Salsi was when they first launched, uh, 
with substantially fewer customers can make such loose and open models work for a while, but only until their subscriber base grows too large, in which case they have to start to curb it by charging higher prices. And so on the flip side of that, you've got ISPs that run on fixed line and fiber infrastructure that have no real long-term bandwidth constraints because as soon as their subscriber base grows too large, all they've got to do is simply just run another fiber line, you know? And then here's the other thing. In various countries on the continent, uh, you have regulatory bodies like, and, and in the case of South Africa, it would be the Independent Communications Authority of South Africa, ICASA. Um, and, and these bodies are are responsible for awarding licenses fairly to companies that wish to operate in the telecom sector. Uh, the idea being um, to protect the public interest by regulating the industry to prevent these companies from pushing their profit motors too far and exploiting people. Now, despite popular sentiment to the contrary, mobile telcos can't, in fact, quote, do whatever they want. Now, the thing is, if you don't trust that regulators in your country are doing their job right or suspect that they're being influenced by corrupt politicians, uh, taking it out on the mobile telcos isn't going to help anything at all, though. And interestingly, countries like Zimbabwe are a prime example of how government regulation can drastically influence mobile data pricing. You know, in the recent case of Zimbabwe, you can see how such regulation can play out for the worse as far as the consumer is concerned. And then, of course, there's the simple economic matter of pricing being driven by supply and demand. Now, despite the widely publicized growth in mobile penetration and adoption of smartphones on the continent, data remains pretty much a luxury for the average African. And in principle, the more people come on board in terms of using mobile data, and of course this is within limits, um, the cheaper it should become for all of us. And in the interim, while we wait for everyone to come online, the more affluent of us on the continent who are able to adopt early will undoubtedly pay a premium for the privilege of using mobile data. Now, according to some research put out by Pew Research Center, only about 3.5 out of every 10 South Africans actually owns a smartphone. 5.5 out of 10 own feature phones still, and 1 out of every 10 don't own a phone at all. Now, compare this to 7 out of 10 Americans owning smartphones in the U.S. and nearly 9 out of 10 South Koreans owning smartphones. And you start to see that despite us outstripping other places in the world in terms of growth, as far as smartphones are concerned, we're still a long way away from the levels of adoption uh, you know, in, in more developed parts of the world. And then, of course, there's the fact that mobile telcos are currently feeling the heat in terms of drastic reductions in voice revenue, all the while having to compete with other providers of broadband services like fixed-line telecoms operators in South Africa, that would be Telcom and Neotel. Then there are fiber operators that are proliferating the space, um, guys like Vumatel and Herotel. Then there's public Wi-Fi players that are partnering with government in many cases, local government and municipalities to roll out public Wi-Fi, um, you know, the likes of Project Isizwe and Twi-Fi. All of this eats into mobile telecoms revenue by providing broadband and voice over IP via ADSL, fiber, and public Wi-Fi. Then, of course, there's the disruptive role of over-the-top services, OTT services like WhatsApp and Viber, they just swoop in and deliver cheap communication options for the masses. And, of course, I love them. Um, and they do this without spending a cent on investing in infrastructure, uh, infrastructure that mobile telcos, quite frankly, are still stuck with and are compelled to try and sweat still. And while I have it under good authority that broadband wholesalers like Seacom are delivering broadband access at lower rates than ever before, the mobile telcos are probably the least well-positioned to pass on those savings to the public. 
I have this hunch that Thibaut Touch's frustration with high data costs has more to do with the realization that Touch Central, the online radio station he recently launched uh, in partnership with Gareth Cliff, after leaving one of the country's highest rated radio shows he used to host on SABC, uh, doesn't have a prayer at achieving the kind of success he enjoyed back when he was with a traditional platform, simply because as much as his listeners might love him, they aren't about to drop literally hundreds of rands a day to tune into his three-hour show every weekday, never mind tune into his radio stations 24 hours a day. So thank you for letting me get that off my chest. But staying with mobile matters, we go to Madagascar next, where the island country has become only the second African market after Tanzania to roll out mobile money interoperability. Now, the country's three mobile money providers, Airtel Money, Mvola, and Orange Money, will now allow transactions to flow seamlessly across networks. Now, this is certainly good news for Madagascar's nearly 23 million people. The GSMA has come out saying that they're thrilled to see mobile operators leverage their separate networks to offer customers access to extensive coverage, offering them a secure and convenient way to access financial services. Now, I've often said that I believe that mobile telcos are going to need to stick together in order to fend off disruption. Uh, Massive consolidation in this space is inevitable over time. I do think it's a trend uh, we can expect to see to happen more often in different shapes and forms. Uh, Well done to Madagascar. Hopefully become a template for what might go down on the mainland. Staying with island news, we go to the Seychelles next, where Barclays Africa is said to be the first major financial institution in the world to have made a trade using blockchain technology. Now, last week, the Seychelles Trading Company Limited and Ornua who are clients of Barclays Africa and Barclays UK, respectively, participated in a pilot transaction which involved a trade of a letter of credit, which was generated through a platform developed by Wave. Uh, They used this to verify a transaction within the blockchain. Now, apparently Wave's platform allows parties in a supply chain to send, receive, and track important source documents, such as the electronic bill of landing, which is said to have been used in this particular transaction. Now, while I'm certain that there are dozens of financial institutions around the world running similar pilots, uh, I think the significance of this announcement is the weight that Barclays uh, is throwing behind the trend towards accepting blockchain technology as a viable means of eliminating many of the inefficiencies uh, that currently exist in international trade. So for that, I tip my hat to Barclays Africa. We see you, fam. To Nigeria now, where Iroko has launched something called Iroko X, a platform that, according to Iroko's founder and CEO, Jason Njoku, simply formalizes an aspect of their business that they've been doing as a matter of course all along, and that's producing, distributing, and monetizing video content. Except Iroko X will concentrate on providing a hand-picked batch of artists who produce three to five-minute short videos with resources that they need to create original work, and then plug them into Iroko's partner network, which includes YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. Now, Iroko claims to have paid out just over half a million dollars to content producers last year, and they also claim to have generated over 1.5 billion views for content distributed through their partners. So this all sounds good. We look forward to seeing how it all works out for um, the original content creators, and indeed, which lucky ones will be handpicked to join the Iroko X Club. Now, heads up, coders, or shall I say hackers, because the next news item is for you. If you're into hacking things, well, Google has announced that a hacking challenge in which the winner will walk away with $200,000 while the runner-up will receive $100,000 is now open. So what needs doing? Nothing terribly difficult. Just hacking into Google's Nexus 6P and 5X devices, knowing only the device's phone numbers and email addresses. 
Easy, right? Well, in order to win, though, you'd be required to expose vulnerabilities in those devices that can be exploited remotely, say by sending a text or by email. So, come on, Africa, you can do this. Hack into Google's Nexus 6P and 5X devices. Let us know if you crack it and win the money. We'd love to celebrate your victory. And, of course, share your money. To Kenya next, we're following a fairly promising mobile money rollout in India last year. Visa has launched its M-Visa app in Kenya that will go head-to-head with M-Pesa. Lots of mobile money news this week. Uh, look, it seems initially Visa plans to leverage its strong relationships with Kenya's banking fraternity by facilitating transactions for people with accounts at four of the country's banks, which include KCB Group Limited, as well as the Cooperative Bank of Kenya Limited. Now, Visa's traditional card business has not taken off in Kenya as well as they would have liked, and they no doubt would relish putting a dent in Safaricom, something like $52.3 billion revenue that they've made via M-Pesa. Now, Visa has landed 1,500 merchants uh, so far, and they're in talks to roll out the product in Uganda, Tanzania, and Rwanda over the next two months, as well as hoping to partner with a Nigerian bank by the end of the year. And so finally, heads up, Lagos. The African Angel Investor Summit is heading your way. It goes down Thursday, November 17th, 2016. The theme for this year's summit is co-investing, making it work together. Now, the events organizers say that with Nigeria now officially in recession and most major economies suffering from low commodity prices, working together is probably the only way forward to unlock capital fast as well as maximize Africa's entrepreneurial potential. Now, the event is expected to draw angels, VCs, government officials, crowdfunders, uh, as well as startup founders from um, all over Nigeria and certainly all over the continent. Uh, here's what's really cool about this event, though. They're crowdsourcing moderators as well as speakers, um, people that you would most want to see and hear in the flesh. Simply Google African Tech Investor Summit 2016 to see which gaps still remain in terms of uh, speakers and moderators. And go ahead and nominate yourself or someone else who might be worthy to share insights at the event. The lineup already includes the likes of good friends of the show, Rebecca Enonchong, Tommy Davies, uh, Ben White and Eloho Omame, as well as Hotels NG founder and CEO Mark Essien. Now, it's fixing to be quite a gathering, so don't sleep on this, Lagos. Don't sleep on it now. And, of course, in this week's discussion segment, we'll be unpacking some controversy surrounding another tech gathering called the African Tech Summit that's scheduled to go down on Thursday, September 29th. Editor-at-large at iAfrican.com, Eric Mugendi, will join me to discuss the matter in a moment. But first, take a listen to an audio comment on the problematic issue of how few black, African, and female representation seems to be featured in the African Tech Summit's lineup. Now, here's the Beyonce-loving Kenyan techie that is Rachel Kichinga, responding to some of the pushback she encountered when she aired her frustrations about this issue on Twitter. Now, unfortunately, the recording is pretty scratchy, but she makes her arguments quite well. So do soldier through and take a listen. Representation matters. Optics matter. I'm... I'm having a disheartening number of people showing up in my mentions when they see me tweeting about this and saying, well, actually, um, we don't have that many African tech leaders. 
oh, well, actually, the African tech leaders we have are not as serious as the ones who are being put forward. Well, actually, um, the people who are here deserve to be here more than the Africans who have not been represented on this stage. And this is precisely why it matters. When you continue to put out ideas and you continue to say, these are the people who are doing the work, and if you're not seeing people here, it's because they're not doing the work. That's your implicit suggestion. You may not be coming up and saying it out loud, but that's what you're tacitly saying. You are saying that um, it doesn't matter that we don't put out a representative or diverse or equitable panel. Um, because these are the people who matter. When you hang that further on the hook of investment and saying, well, we pick this group of people, we ask them to self-finance and get here because the idea is for us to generate investment. Um, what you are coming out and saying is that investment um, opportunities should be garnered by people who look a certain way, who sound a certain way, who... Um, can be taken more seriously by people, other people who look like them and who sound like them. And then you just repeat and perpetuate these biases. And then we have a scenario whereby we're looking at a quartz report from, um, I think, late last year or earlier this year, which is talking about the top, I mean, the, the top tech companies that got funding over the last year. And you see that out of the top five names, four of them are not even white Africans, but um, non-African uh, Westerners who come here and are working on the continent. Because we know about the Silicon Valley biases, we know that these white male upper middle class VC investors, VC um, folks are coming and funding other people who look like them, white male upper middle class. We know this. We know that Silicon Valley has a significant minority problem. We know that women are not being represented. We know that black people and Latino and Hispanic people are not being funded um, at the rate that white people are. And what we're doing is we're buying into these biases and saying, well, if that's happening, we're going to take that, we're going to transplant those tech companies onto the African um, tech scene and then get these companies funded because um, this, this is what works in the world. So we're going to go ahead and work within that mold and exploit that mold as opposed to radically saying, um, we're going to break this mold, we're going to shift things up, and we're going to say that um, Africans are building solid companies. We are generating solid revenues. We are, we are solving problems that um, should be being solved because we understand the scenario in which we're working. You should give us money. As Africans, we do not need to have somebody else speak on our behalf or represent us on our behalf. We should be able to do this. That was Rachel Gichinga all fired up. And now on to my chat with Eric Mugendi of iAfrican.com. Eric Mugendi, welcome to the African Tech Roundup, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, uh, very interesting uh, debate we have on our hands with the African Tech Summit controversy. But before we get into all that, I want you to tell me what's trending in your world at the moment. What's going down, East Africa? Well, uh, in Kenya, there's been uh, uh, some debate about there's a new interest rate law. And uh, one of the biggest uh, lenders in, in East Africa, that's uh, Equity Bank, they've actually lowered their interest rates to comply with the, the central bank's new law. So what they've done is what the central bank did was they set the lending rate at 4% uh, above the central bank reference rate. And... Uh, what this means is you can't offer a loan at more than 14% per, per year. But you have um, guys like uh, Safaricom through their Mshuari service. They're charging interest rates of about 7% per month, which actually translates to about, uh, it's ridiculous, it's about 90% interest. So you yep. have, um, 
you're almost paying like literally double the money if you borrow it over a year. So what uh, Equity has done is they've lowered the interest rate for the loans on, on Equitel. So right. they're actually offering loans at 14%, which is four points above the, the central bank rate. So that means that um, that's for existing loans and for new loans as well. So there's still some confusion because all these other lenders, all these other people like uh, CBA, which is uh, which is partnered with Safaricom to offer M, the, the loans on Mshwari, they're saying that these, this new law doesn't apply to them. And so they're still holding out. And they actually sent a, a text saying that if you, if you, if you save on Mshwari, you'll actually get it at uh, 7%. That's... Uh, on, on savings, but then the interest rate on borrowing still remains 7.5% per month. So there's still some confusion because no one really knows who is going to offer interest, uh, the loans at, at what rate. So, Sure. This mobile money trend is really the cat among the pigeons as far as uh, uh, you know the traditional finance business. I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you reckon the, the conversations in, say, the halls of... Uh, uh, Barclays Africa or Standard Bank or some place like that. What do you think they t- they're chatting about at the moment? I think they're more likely to focus on like corporate lending instead of, of retail, because the thing that sets Equity apart is they have probably the biggest uh, customer base in terms of numbers. So they're more focused on on the on the retail side. But now, when it comes to bigger, more traditional banks, they're more focused on corporate lending, and. Um, I don't think they're, they're quite interested in, in now offering cheaper loans to like the small businesses and the, the, the individuals on the ground. So they'll probably try to shuffle around a couple of accounts, change which accounts earn interest, and um, they'll try to position themselves as um, more, on, more on the corporate side. So I don't think they're going to, to be much moved by, by these changes. So I, I, I think... When it comes to actual lending to the individuals on the ground, the banks with the bigger customer numbers are the ones that stand to lose the most from this move. Because if you have someone offering a cheaper loan, what you can do is you can literally just go to the bank that has a lower rate and then they buy out your loan from the other bank. And then, yeah, they're going to attract more customers that way. Sure, that's really interesting. And staying with mobile money, really, uh... I spoke about on the show a little earlier the the fact that MTN is discontinuing their mobile money service and <laughs> Kenyan Kenyan Twitter was uh, <laughs> was very funny this week uh, in response to that news um, people coming out saying come on stop trying to be us <laughs> yeah because I think the if you look at how mobile money has been positioned it's like the one size fits all solution for for Africa like if you want to figure out a way to to introduce something like finance-based, you have to introduce a mobile money aspect. But I think it's just an indication of just how different Kenya and South Africa are. Because um, if you yeah. look at the, the, the level of, of formal banking in Kenya, it was quite low before M-Pesa came in. So there was the fact that people were taking up more phones and the fact that they didn't have access to bank accounts that contributed to the rise of mobile money over here. But then if you look at, at SA, South Africans are far more banked when it comes to 
like actual access to formal banking. So when it comes to sending money or like paying for things, there's a lot more access to credit cards and debit cards down there than um, than in Kenya. So it it didn't make it didn't take it didn't pick up as as much as I think the operators wanted. So it's not so much that our ecosystems are similar. It's that they're so different that the things that contributed to the rise of mobile money in Kenya uh, didn't really work out in South Africa. So I think, I guess, they mm. just have to regroup and find something that works for them. Yeah. Africa is a country must fall, man. Africa is not a country, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but also, again, mobile money is something we touched on uh, in, 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 in the news uh, segment. Um, Visa launching a, a mobile money service that's so originally uh, titled M Visa. Um, again, my question is: I'm, just, I, I, I'm I'm fascinated in trying to psychoanalyze the corp, you know, at least get into this corporate psyche around responding to mobile money, at least as far as the traditional players are concerned. Visa certainly being um, the toast of the toast of the town many years ago, cutting edge fintech, as it were, now kind of on the back foot. Yeah, because it seems more people are taking up like. A- branded debit cards especially like when it comes to visa and if you look at the sort of of offerings that banks have when it comes to cards i think visa is the the most um the most visible so i don't think it's it's really going to challenge mobile money because the m visa is really targeted towards people who have bank accounts already so it's just going to be like uh i think it's just going to be an, an added advantage like the fact that you can now transact using your phone and it connects to to visa and you can you, you can just do payments on it but i think it's it, it's going to challenge safaricom because safaricom is also trying to get into the card space so i think visa is already established on that side so just yeah. wait and see how safaricom handles it that's definitely a big trend um with quite a few mobile money services in south africa uh at least if if not already working uh, towards having cards as part of what they as part of their offering or, or you know being poised to launch them i guess this is a, a defensive move on the part of visa going hang on a minute we see you in we see you fam over there with your with your mobile money fintech story but don't come over here and challenge our card business yeah yeah and then finally look how excited are you i mean given you're in the publishing space um i know with kenyan long reads as well as with i african you know for twitter allowing us to to, to tweet so much longer tweets than, than when we ever have before. I'm not sure how to feel about this, man. I, okay, because one of the things that I need to consider where every time I'm publishing a story is I need to make the headline short enough to <laughs> fit within a tweet. <laughs> People don't realize that's like an hour of your day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as in there's so much editing that goes into headlines. Like you have to no. try to compress it as much as possible. So it's, it's great. It's going to open up um, a lot of uh, space, like especially for expression and trying to add more nuance to headlines and stories and stuff. So I think it's it's going to be like having more space on tweets is definitely a, a plus because we always have just that much more to say. That's true, but it does seem a little desperate coming from Twitter as far as I'm concerned. And I know. Um, my timeline's about to be awash with emojis galore, and I'm I'm guilty of of using them to great effect. However, with with more to say, with with more um, more to say, I can just see 
people squeezing in just so much more as opposed to, you know, keeping it nice and short. I don't know. Who knows? It might be the best thing ever. I, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong about it. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm unsettled about it. I have to be honest. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed it's going to work out. Back to the story that really, you know, put me on the line to you um, or got me on the line to you, uh, this African Tech Summit controversy. Uh, let's discuss the name firstly, which I think is partly the problem here. Um, here's a summit um, in in the UK. I believe there's actually one that's, that happened last year in Lagos, um, also calling itself the African Tech Summit. Um, I don't believe, I have no idea whether these two summits are related or if this, they have the same organizers. They certainly have two different um, URLs. And um, so the, here's, here's an African Tech Summit. You go on the site, um, you can't really tell who's convening the event. Um, it's not clear. It, there is, you know, if you if you visit the site, you have a sense of what they hope to achieve, what they hope to bring together. But lofty aspirations involving, uh, you know, being a a, a premier, in you know, invite driven uh, uh, platform that will in what that will sort of give delegates an opportunity to get. Uh, uh, a 360 on the state of Africa's tech ecosystem. Okay, and it's called African Tech Summit, and it's in London. Um, so you you started, a, uh, I think you started, to be fair, you started a debate on Twitter, which the likes of Uber's Justin Spratt joined. Um, uh, your your, your homegirl, uh, Rachel Kichinga, joined in uh, with a very opinionated stance we played um, at the top of our discussion and yeah, what do you make of a tech summit with such lofty aspirations being based in the UK? Is that problematic in and of itself? I think so. I think it's a it's a really big problem because if you look at uh, just if you look at geography in Africa, like a lot of the the stuff that's happened affecting the continent tends to happen somewhere else, and for the longest time. This was because um, the the opinion was Africans aren't really prepared to handle some of the discussions around the things that affect them. And a lot of the, the, the discussion that, that came up was you can't have a, a, a conference in London and call it the Africa Tech Conference. And then you look at the panel and then you're like, I have no idea who half those people are. And um, like uh, to look at the example of, of let's say, you're having a, a UK tech conference and then you decide to hold it in Tokyo, for example. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense to have something and call it an African conference and then hold it somewhere where I would have to apply for, like I'd literally have to apply for a visa and wait for about, I'd say three weeks for the visa to be processed. And then I pay airfare to go to, and I'm not even assured that I'm going to get that visa. So. By making it an African, by calling it an African conference and then holding it somewhere where I, as an African, can't go, then uh, it doesn't make any sense. That's why I actually said in my in one of my first responses was, this isn't so much uh, a conference on who can or who is able to speak about tech in Africa. It's more like who's most likely to get a visa. And I, and I and I hear you sort of come across as saying this idea that you guys need to sort of plot how you can help us out and. And, and, and sort of uh, decide over there uh, what needs doing over here is, is a bit problematic. Yeah, it is. Because the fact that it's so removed from the, the, the space that it's trying to speak for 
is it's ridiculous because if you look at other similar conferences, if you look at say fintech conferences or if you look at conferences on the Internet of Things, they don't just uh, have the, the, the self-selecting. That's what I'm trying to say. The conferences yeah. are very they try to represent the, the subject that they're speaking about. But if you look at the, the composition of the panel, I think that's the thing that, that, that most people found disturbing because it would be fine if I, if I look at the, the composition of the panel and, and I saw people who I know. And I'm, I'm actually familiar with a, a bunch of the people on the panel. Like I actually did work for Shay Taylor, who's at Big Cabal Media. And I have spoken to Andrew Appiah, who's at Zipe. So I know that for a fact that they're able to articulate some of the things that are problematic in the African tech space, and they're able to talk about uh, what it means to be a founder in in, the, in this space as well, and uh, and also someone like like Marek Zimlowski, who's at uh, Hotel Oga, he's able to talk about setting up a, a, a platform literally from scratch in Nigeria because there was literally nothing there in terms of hotel booking. And he's, he's been able to carve out this niche for himself. So the fact that these people are trying to, to speak for a tech space as if there's nothing there, and a bunch of them are literally copy-pasted from Silicon Valley into the African tech space, it's problematic. And it's not that we don't have startups in Africa. We have so many that could have been able to... to to speak for, for this space. And it's not just that. There's so many African techies working in, in, in the UK, for example. So you can't say that they did try to find people to speak for the, uh, for the space and, and they didn't find anyone. My question is, how do, how do we correct it? Because on the flip side of this debate is, um, is, is, is a tweet that I, I personally retweeted um, that was put out by another event that's going to be happening uh, next month. It's the African Angel Investor Summit that will be happening in Lagos. Um, they've done things quite significantly differently in terms of composing the delegates and speakers who will be speaking at their event. They've actually gone the crowdsourcing route. They've let everyone know in their network that if you think you're worthy of being at this platform, let us know. Um, if there's someone else you think we should have and we don't have yet, please nominate them. And then on, on Friday, they came out saying, listen, 7 out of 14 so far – um, of the people we intend to have at this conference are women, hip hip hooray! That doesn't that almost play into uh, you know the field of tokenism on, in some respect? How, how do we how do we balance this out though? It, it does look like tokenism because you're literally looking for people who present a certain a certain image or a certain aspect of of the tech ecosystem, and the fact that this is a bragging point for them that they have uh, that half the panel is is composed of women is part of the problem it shouldn't be that uh this is the this is a selling point for us that half our panel is composed of women it should be that it's one of the things that you notice when you're looking at the program when you're at the event it shouldn't it shouldn't be a selling point for your event that you have gone out of your way to to be diverse because then you're you're literally advocating for diversity for the sake of diversity and on the other hand if you look at the the, the fact that um, a lot of these people on these panels are, are speaking from a point of knowledge and a lot of them are parts of networks that um, people who know people and you, you can literally work on these networks to like constitute a panel 
without having to 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 I want to say pander, but that's 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 a difficult word, without having to yeah. to pander to certain demographics. So the fact that on on one hand you have a, a panel that's majority white men speaking for a tech uh, ecosystem in Africa, and on the other hand you have a conference using the fact that they're super diverse as a selling point, it shows that conferences are okay. We're not trying to 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 save the world using conferences and panel discussions because that's never going to happen. But at the same time, we can't have uh, these panels trying to advocate for or trying to speak for a certain space. We should we should just go uh, by meritocracy, like who most deserves to be in this panel. And um, I like what um, the, the Lagos conference is doing because you, you're literally canvassing, you're asking people, who would you most like to see on this panel? Because a lot of the, the conferences and events where you have like a woman, like a women's tech thing, that's, uh, that's the sort of angle they take. They ask people, who would you most like, want to see on this panel? So similarly, I, w- I would want to see something like that happen. Um, With the one happening in the UK. I suppose... I think that therein lies perhaps a slight weakness in Rachel's argument when she says optics matter in the sense that um, I hear your argument for meritocracy, um, although the, 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 but the problem is there's, there is room for, for subjectivity. If merit is being determined by a white male sitting in Silicon Valley and he looks at his portfolio and it's predominantly white males invested in Africa – he, he'll, 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 his sense of merit will be based on what he sees in front of him, right? In which case, Rachel's argument kicks in. Um, you can't just do that. You have to think beyond that. You have to think to the ecosystem. You have to stretch yourself and look for people outside of your comfort zone and realize that there are a lot of hard-working people going, doing things, great things that you might not even know about. Um, there's something that Justin Spratt said in, in your exchange on Twitter. Um, I mean, he, he, he basically you know, put his neck out for, for the chaps organizing this conference who as yet I have no idea who they are really. Um, I have some, I, I have some thoughts about who it might be, who might be behind it, but I, I'm not sure who it is, but nevertheless, he says he knows some of the organizers and their hearts are in the right place, etc. Um, and he made that argument. I mean, speak to the argument of there's a limit to who could attend. A lot of the people who are on that panel are people who funded themselves to attend, who could afford to come, who, whose schedules permitted it. Um, does that sort of thinking let organizers off the hook? It doesn't. I think it just means that they weren't looking hard enough because you can't make the argument that the, we opened our doors and these are the people who came in, so these are the ones we went with because you literally have a panel that is constituted of like people who are, I want to say, I want to call them casual acquaintances of the African tech ecosystem. And you might as well have um, held, a, uh, held a conference in uh, somewhere like uh, in Kigali, for example, and it would have attracted a, a far more diverse platform. The fact that your pandering to the the community that exists around you and you're not willing to go out and look for people who are more likely to fit the the composition the sort of discussion you're having in this panel the question that we haven't really asked is who is the audience at this conference because one of the arguments that uh, justin was making was that a lot of the money that comes into africa passes through london so it makes sense to have a, a conference over there so 
by saying that the money is coming from a certain place, you're saying that the people who are most likely to attend are the ones most likely to put money in the ecosystem. So they are more likely to put money in if they see people who look like them. They're trying to justify their laziness. They're trying to justify the fact that they didn't look hard enough to find people who fit within the, the parameters that they set. And the fact that they're using this as an argument is, is, is it's very insulting. Because the Chinese say that uh, people in the African tech space who could speak in this event aren't as likely to attend because they can't afford it and they don't have time because look at where the event is. It's in London. So it doesn't make any sense. So on the whole, I'm trying to say that it's, it's almost, uh, almost self-defeating to try to justify how this panel was arrived at because... They're trying to say that these are the people who are most available and who are most um, likely to attend. It's quite interesting to like observe the differences in mindset. I mean, with the uh, with the uh, African uh, Angel Investor Summit in Lagos, they're partnering with She Leads Africa as well as Ingressive, who do investment tours. They bring investors from abroad to to soak in the vibe, interact with the people, as well as attend what's hopefully. Uh, a balanced representation of Africa's tech ecosystem. There, there seems to be a different approach to what makes sense in terms of introducing Africa's tech ecosystem and the opportunities that lie there to potential investors. If this if this summit is in, is indeed targeting potential investors, I suppose you might be arguing in part that this is not the best way to introduce our continent, our tech ecosystem, and the opportunities that lie there to money in London that might decide to make its way to Africa. Is that right? Yeah, sure. I, I don't think anyone who's attending would leave with a, an accurate picture of what's happening. Yeah. So you're making an argument for the the, the weakness in composition of the people present, the, the weakness in the notion that um, it ought to be in London in order to appeal to people in that part of the world uh, and, and, and draw them to, to, to investing in, in Africa. And then the whole idea of the African Tech Summit, uh, perhaps they plan to move it some other place. Uh, I find it particularly problematic in the context of the news that Oxfam is planning to move its headquarters from the UK to, to Nairobi. <laughs> this debate and that news happening in the same week is, is quite hilarious to me. Let's move aid right where it's needed, or at least let's go be relevant by being here amongst our African brothers and sisters uh, so we can be more helpful to them. Um, but let's take investment summits overseas so that we can... Yeah, it's a bit weird. It is. It's very bipolar because there, there's um, the argument that that's where the money is, so that's where we need to have the conference, versus this is Africa is where the action is, so we need to have the conference over there. I think the latter argument holds more water. So, I mean, I have to disclose. I mean, I've got some uh, some people I've come to to know and respect who are listed to speak at this event. Um, I, I see Ben White, certainly VC for Africa. Um, I have a lot of respect for, for the work they do uh, in terms of, uh, you know, bringing people together. I do think, though, in fairness to Justin Spratt, who I did invite on the show and wasn't able to make it, unfortunately, Perhaps the the point he's making is more one driven by a sense of pragmatism, I sense, and it's something that I, I did discuss with Ben White when I, I, had, I did have a sit down with him some some months ago. This idea that you know, um, while you know these debates around values and and culture and and correctedness are, you know have their place and are certainly important, we we might do well to remember that at the end of the day, everything is about 
the mighty dollar or at least you know depending where you are the mighty shilling or the, <laughs> the mighty rand it all does comes down to financial interest and, and being able to convert um good ideas into viable businesses and so on and so forth and so i suppose to be fair to to anybody who might push a pragmatic agenda that is true though you have to admit i mean that we we we, if, if anything, it, it's not an entirely bad thing that there's someone, uh, you know, that there's a group of people excited enough about what's happening on the continent to, to plan an entire summit around it. Perhaps they can tweak it next year, but surely it's mostly a good thing? I think so, because I don't think we're at the point where we're able to fully finance our own tech ecosystems, because a lot of the money coming into tech is from VC funds and from external sources and these are the people who this conference appears to be targeted towards so yeah it's 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 a good thing that they're trying to take the take the the, the discussion to the sources of of the finance so and one of the one of the things that this conference is aiming for is to connect the the tech ecosystem in Africa with um, with investors so that that is a good thing, but yeah. I still think that the, on the whole, the panel could be a lot more representative of of the ecosystem that it's trying to connect. It's not so much that um, we are so desperate to get funding that we just want to take money from anyone. It's more like we want to take part in the conversation. I think that is yeah. Uh, that was one of the the, the reasons why the, the argument were, was so loud and so strong. It's that. Africans were feeling left out of this conversation because it's calling itself the Africa Tech Summit. But if you look at the composition, I mean, I think they, they've uh, rehashed the panel a bit, but before there, were, there was not a single black woman on the panel. And there's so many. I see Hawaii Mohammed um, of Afrobytes, um, which again it is, is a conference. Uh, I think Afrobytes is basically, uh, they're behind the a conference that's usually hosted in Paris. Um, again, uh, she's one of, I'm just looking here, one of one, one of one. Oh, one of two. There's Chika Chukujeku of PWC. Again, it's it's arguable whether that, um, given her role, and she seems pretty accomplished, the bio suggests that she's pretty accomplished. Again, um, is she a, a decent representative of the tech ecosystem specifically? I don't know. I'm not sure because that was one. I think that was one of the reasons why we were so indignant. It's that this conference is trying to speak for an ecosystem, and then it's leaving out the majority of people who are actually part of that ecosystem. So you can't exclude African women who have founded so many successful startups from this conversation. Granted, there was um, there was one who I. Th- I think it's Africa Techie on Twitter. She said that she had been invited, but she declined. Yeah, Rebecca Inanchong, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there have been people coming out in not, not so much support, but sympathy in a sense. Like, well, guys, I think their hearts are in the right place. And I, and I, have, I lean towards that, that view that, look, I think people's hearts are in the right place. They're no doubt trying to make connections. They're trying to, to create a sense of enthusiasm around Africa's tech ecosystem um, in the UK specifically. I do think it's problematic that the, the title Africa Tech Summit, given 
how it, sh it ought to be applied, in my view, to a, a conference that has done a lot more work in the area that you've, you're speaking about, making sure the composition is right, making sure that you are, in fact, speaking with authority um, to the entire tech ecosystem. I mean, we get flack at the African Tech Roundup from time to time for our inability to fully grasp um, everything there is to know about the, the you know, African tech ecosystem. And I think it's a fair... It's a fair criticism given the name of the podcast. You know what I mean? Um, if our commitment isn't to, to covering the biggest stories across the continent on a weekly basis and, and doing so on the basis of merit and not just what's trending or what's fun to talk about, um, then I think we, we're fair game for that kind of criticism. And, and it just makes us work all that much harder to, to make sure that every time people tune in, they do get in a you know in in half an hour to an hour a snapshot of what might be at least eight times out of ten or six even seven times out of ten the most important stories impacting our ecosystem and I think that takes a lot of doing and uh, more so for a conference such as this which um, which I think uh, you'll agree um, we'll probably be going back to the drawing board to see how to do it better next time if indeed they do survive another year. Definitely. I mean, like we also struggle when it comes to finding stories from all over Africa to write about because every we can't just keep doing the same stories about uh, mobile money and like um, random conferences happening. We, we actually do make an effort because we try to cover as much as possible. Like we recently tried to do more stories coming from North Africa, for example. And it's not just mm -hmm. because it's a nice thing to do and it's a nice thing to, to, it, it, to, to write about, but it's because these stories genuinely need to be told. And we're the ones who have put ourselves in that position to try to tell these stories. So it's not so much that um, we're trying to just capitalize on whatever is the hot big trend of the season. It's that we feel that um, these stories do need to be told. That's why we're trying to, to advocate for better representation of, our, of the ecosystem that we cover and we're also trying to make it uh, so that uh, we're trying to hold these people accountable because first of all, you, uh, we can't just keep having the same faces on panels and we can't keep having the same like, um, exclusion of women on panels. There's, there was a hashtag actually, say no to panels, say no to panels made exclusively of men that was going the other day. Yeah, because you find that women keep getting excluded from these conversations. Uh, so it's, some of the, the, the hardest working people in the African tech ecosystem are women because yeah, we can't just keep um, rehashing the same conversations that we've had and trying to make it look like we're just doing this because it's it's nice or it's it's a it's it's a good thing, but it's because we genuinely feel that this conversation has value and it needs proper attention and it needs to be done right. Absolutely. So I suppose moral of the story is um, we we are like chewing out <laughs> these poor uh, event organizers um, uh, a great deal, but we're certainly not. Uh, stopping short of putting our own feet to the fire as far as doing the best we all can to to represent correctly this tech ecosystem and um yeah listen we're watching we see you fam uh it doesn't matter how far you are certainly if you're going to slap our name on stuff i.e africa on something we're going to to stand up and, and let you know if if we think you're doing it right and um 
I'd like to thank you very much, Eric Mugendi, repping for Kenyan Long Reads, as well as um, iAfrican.com, where you're editor-at-large. I really do appreciate your time. Many, many thanks to Rachel Gichinga, as well as Eric Mugendi of iAfrican.com. Now we throw it to you. Tell us what you make of the whole debate. Are we making a mountain out of a molehill? Or should the organizers continue to take steps to rectify the situation and make sure it doesn't happen again? Tell us what you look for in a conference that you're looking to attend and let us know if the composition of the speaker list is make or break for you in terms of deciding whether to attend or not. You can tweet us at African Roundup or drop us an email via hello at africantechroundup.com. Now, once again, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by our sister podcast, African Tech Conversations. The series features relaxed, in-depth chats that I've had with leading entrepreneurs, innovators, and executives who are intimately involved in Africa's tech scene. To check it out, simply head to our SoundCloud account at soundcloud.com forward slash African Tech Roundup and click on the African Tech Conversations playlist. And so that's the week's show, folks. I'll be back next week, Monday, on africantechroundup.com. Come 9 a.m. Central African time. But before I sign off today, I want to send a special shout-out to all the awesome people I rub shoulders with at the Arms Corps Aerospace and Defense Conference 2016, as well as the Aerospace and Defense Expo 2016. I'm really encouraged to see how the continent is coming together to set its own agenda in terms of progress. Uh, respect to all of you who made it out to those events from all over the world. Here's to seeing you all again two years from now in 2018, or perhaps sooner if our paths should cross before then. And so to everyone listening, till next time, do take care, Africa.